Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Michelle Cox's genre-bending Henrietta and Inspector Howard series melds mystery, romance and family saga into a Chicago version of Downton Abbey meets Upstairs Downstairs that her readers adore. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Michelle talks about her passion for period drama and 1930s Chicago, how working in a nursing home got her started in her writing and what she'd do differently if she was starting out all over again. But before we get to Michelle, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to everything we've discussed here today, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Michelle. Hello there, Michelle, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thank you for having me. And you're in Chicago and I'm in Auckland, so that's, <laughs> we're spanning a big distance, aren't we? <laughs> yes, yes. It's awesome. <laughs> Was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you must write fiction or you would have somehow let yourself down or not fulfilled the purpose that you were made for? And if so, was there a catalyst for it? Well, no, not really. Um, Actually, I didn't ever really see myself writing fiction. Um, I never had the courage, I think, to be a writer. I loved reading as a kid. I was always reading. And I think one of the greatest Christmas presents I ever got was a set of the of Louisa May Alcott stories. And so I was always trying to do little copycat or fan fiction stories based on her novels, but they never really went anywhere. And so I usually just would end up illustrating them instead. But I was a pretty good essayist even in high school. And so I, I did still contemplate becoming a writer um, versus uh, becoming a doctor. And I thought, I I actually chose to be a pre-med in college because I thought it was the easier path (laughs) than being a writer. I thought it, and it seemed less scary to me. And it turns out that that's kind of true. But at the time I thought, okay, I'm going to, going to, to pre-med. And then I took this Victorian lit class and I, you know, I said, you know, you can't keep hiding. This is really your passion. And so I quickly switched, but still only majored with an English lit, not creative writing. And I then I got married after college and I had all these weird jobs and um, then I started a family and that all kind of went out the window until um, my oldest was when he was 16, he was diagnosed with ADHD and I had been volunteering all these, you know, committees and groups and I just quit everything just cold turkey and I just devoted all this time to this kid and you know it didn't take too long for him to get you know on a path and then I suddenly had all this time and so I thought you know you can either get a job you can um, go back to volunteering or maybe you should write that novel 
that you really always wanted to write. And so I finally gave myself the permission and finally had the courage after, you know, 20 years to really, um, to do this, but it really wasn't to get published. It was really more just to see if I could actually sit down and write a novel. So strange way that it all happened, but here we are. And I noticed you say you did Victorian lit. Were you always attracted to historical fiction? Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, I was probably the weirdest kid because I um, I, I had this thing in my head where I always wanted to read like the Newbery Award winners or the Caldecotts or I was always attracted to the classics and I always had this inner motivation that I, I should read, you know, only really good, good books. And I remember being about 10 or 11 one summer, my mom taking me to the library and I, I felt so conflicted and I said, mom, you know, I don't know whether to just pick out junk or, you know, read the classics. And she said, oh, honey, just read junk. <laughs> but I <laughs> couldn't do it. I had to read the Newberries. And then I, I basically read only classic literature um, until my third kid was born. And then my brain kind of turned to mush. And so I needed some kind of something a little lighter. And I moved into historical fiction because at least it was similar time periods to what I was used to reading. Yeah, sure. So you have now made your name in, his, in historical fiction and A Veil Removed, the fourth book in your Henrietta and Inspector Howard series. It begins in the 1930s in Chicago and it's due out soon. Um, what attracted you to 1930s Chicago? Well, that's a great question. Um, I've, I <laughs> the truth is that I'm actually or used to be really attracted to the 40s and I love the war years and the music and everybody being united against this common enemy um, but when I was in one of the weird jobs that I mentioned before that I had was working in a nursing home on Chicago's northwest side and it was called the Bohemian Home for the Aged and Orphans. <laughs> well, we didn't have any orphans. But um, yeah, it was a very strange nursing home. And it was there that I met all of these amazing people that had lived through, most of them immigrants who had lived through the 30s and 40s. And they just had amazing, fabulous stories to tell. I, I tell writing groups sometimes that if you're stumped for ideas, just go sit in a nursing home for a couple of weeks because you'll have yeah. all the ideas you could ever, ever, ever want. So anyway, I met this one woman and um, I actually used her story. I based... Um, Henrietta Van Harmon, the, the, the heroine of my series, on this woman because she used to tell me that she had a man-stopping body and a personality to go with it in the 30s in Chicago. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Even then, I was like, wow, that would make a great book. So um, I based, but she, the one detail of her life that really intrigued me was that she had a job, she had all these weird jobs and all of, I put all of those weird jobs in the book. So a lot of book one is actually true. Um, but one of them was that she had this job in 1933 at the Chicago World's Fair 
and she was a Dutch girl for a Dutch rubber company. So that meant that every day she had to dress up in a Dutch girl costume and hand out flyers. And she said it was her favorite job because on her lunch break, she got to walk around the whole fair and see everything. So I just, that endeared me so much. And I thought, wow, I just really want to set the book in the 30s so I can use that detail. And so I shifted and I'm kind of glad I did because there's not as much written in those in-between years, you know, between the war, but Mm -hmm. they're so rich with stories from the depression and the haves and the have-nots. And so it's, it's really been a great experience. And I also love the music from that era too. So that helps. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, it's, that first book, I suppose it probably started out being described as a mystery, but as you've continued, it's, it's it's kind of evolved into more of a family saga in a way with mysteries there. But how would you actually describe what it is now? And was that always planned or did it sort of evolve as it went along? Well, I it, it is a really a little bit of everything, um, which marketers and book distributors, <laughs> by the way, don't really like because they want everything to be a nice, neat genre because they want to know where to put it on the shelf. And yes. this is really sort of a blended sort of thing. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, you know, coming from the reader's side. I think that yeah. readers are sophisticated enough to, to enjoy sort of a blending of genres. I mean, there's some pretty hardcore mystery readers or romance and that's all they like but they always say write something that you would like to read and so that's what I did and I like to describe it as like a Downton Abbey meets upstairs downstairs the little mystery thrown in so yeah it's it didn't start out that way because I originally I was I thought well I was trying to sell this other book and I couldn't get any interest. So I decided to write a mystery thinking that that would be more attractive to an agent. You know, I was really naive back then. (laughs) Anyway, so I wrote this mystery, but then as it, um, as I was writing, I really fell in love with these characters and I thought, wow, this could be a great series. But the problem is that I didn't really want to write this series about a cop and his wife and they solve these gritty crimes in Chicago and there's kidnappings and rapes and all of this. And I thought, you know, (laughs) oh no, what am I going to do? So I I really love the characters, but I didn't like where I had placed them. It was good for one book, but I didn't, didn't really see expanding this out. So I decided to give Clive a secret past And so he's actually very wealthy. He's the son of these very wealthy people. And so that threw a really interesting twist into, I thought, into the book. It's sort of this, now it's become this sort of reverse Cinderella story. So it's like Henrietta is now the Cinderella, but she doesn't really want to be. So that creates a whole other, you know, type of drama and tension. And I can still go you know, they can still go into the city if they have to for a case or whatever, but then they can escape into this other world too. Yes. Yeah. And Henrietta and Clive, they are a slightly mismatched couple. I put quotes around that in a (laughs) conventional sense, because there are big differences in both their age and as you've mentioned, their social status. Um, And I wondered, was that always very strongly there right from the beginning? Um, yeah, it, it, 
It was. I mean, there was definitely supposed to be this um, this age difference between them. And you know, it's strange when you're writing a book. <laughs> if I had to do it all over again, I now I would know what I'm doing. But at the time, I thought, well, I really want him to have been in World War One because I really want him to be really scarred from that. Yes. So I made him. You know, the youngest I could possibly have made him to to go into the war, so that that left him in the 30s. He was he's about you know around 30 years old. Yes. So, and, and Henrietta had to be this sort of younger, very naive girl. So I thought, well, you know, that's it's a bit of a stretch, but I think I can do it. Um, and then I didn't think about you know creating another wedge between them, which is the wealth versus the poverty. Mm-hmm. But I think that that really, I think it works well. And um, Clive, you know, really wants this sort of traditional wife. And he is sometimes upset with Henrietta because she doesn't fulfill that. But on the other hand, one of the reasons that he's attracted to her is because she is so independent and kind of spunky. And so that creates another little uh, dilemma there, too. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that because I, I know that you're a great fan of, of those shows like Downton. We'll get on to your um, passion about those a little bit later. But Julian Fellows, who created Downton, I was quite fascinated recently. to I started to watch a video on YouTube about the making of the new movie. And he said in that that when they originally started that enormously successful franchise, the idea behind it was to capture the spirit of the time while sounding modern. And I think that's something that you've managed to do with Henrietta and Clive because she is very very much a modern woman living in the 1930s, isn't she? Do you think? Yeah, you know, and that's so tricky to do, isn't it? Because you, yeah. you want her to be um, true to the time, but you can't but you have to make her appealing to a modern reader. So that's a fine line to walk, but really all you have to do is look at the woman that this character is based on. I mean, she really was this very spunky independent woman at the time who had all these strange jobs, including being an usherette in the burlesque house. So all of that is is true. So she had to have a little bit of independence and spunk to her. So I I just, I think it's all in how you present it. Yes. Um, with the, the dialogue and the language, I'm really a big stickler on. And I think if you can get that right, you can convince readers that, you know, that you're true to the era. And like I said before, it's hard because... I mean, you can paint her as this independent woman working in Chicago. It makes it a little harder, really a little bit more of a stretch when now they're in this relationship and he kind of wants the traditional thing and she doesn't want that. That that was hard to do, I think. But I think I pulled it off. Hope yes. I did. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And we won't give away any spoilers about how it happens, but... Um, by the time they get to book three, a promise given, it kind of evolves again because they have a good reason for going to England and it gets even more Downton Abbey as the story goes along, <laughs> doesn't it? 
<laughs> yes, delightfully so. No. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Anglophile. I'm married to a Brit. I studied for a while in London, and I think I've watched every period drama ever created. So it seems like this was a natural evolution, like it, it was going to happen sooner or later, right? <laughs> Yes. You'll probably be sad when you have to bring them back to Chicago. (laughs) I know. Well, I did have to do that in four. I'm like, oh, no, back to this. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm already scheming for a way to get them back there by book six. So we'll see. (laughs) Oh, that's so how many have you got in mind at this stage? Well, five's in the works and um, with being edited and all of that. um, I would like to... uh, I'd like to do more. I, I've just, I feel like I've been writing them so quickly that I'd kind, I kind of want to see what, you know, the, my readers responses. I mean, so far it's been really great. Yes. Um, people are really excited by them and, you know, waiting for the next one. Um, I've also written a separate standalone novel and I'm kind of trying to shop that. So any agents out there listening, <laughs> I'm interested. <laughs> What is but, that one? Is, that, is, it, is it also 1930s? Yeah, it's still set in the 1930s and um, different characters completely, but also based on a, a story that I heard in the nursing home. This one's yes. a little more dark. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I don't know. I was quite um, impressed by seeing that you on your website you say that you feel like you might have lived in the 1930s. And I wondered if you could just perhaps riff a little bit on that how does that make you feel in terms of the nostalgia for that period yeah you know I think like I said I I I at first um was really in love with the 40s um but especially after meeting all of these people in the nursing home who had lived during the depression and um had lived with losing their jobs and losing all of their money and how they banded together. Cause originally I, part of the thing about the forties that I really love is, is people banding together and to fight this common enemy. And you, in the thirties, you find that people still banded together only it was against a different type of, you know, quote enemy poverty. And there's so many stories of people Back then, you know, they talked about it as a different world that they would sometimes sleep on the beaches of of Lake Michigan and nobody worried about people stealing from them or being murdered or whatever. So I just I found those stories really interesting. And it's it's right, you know, on the cusp of the next war. And you have the all of the old sort of societal rules breaking down. And then when World War II comes along, it really ultimately crushes it. So that's really intriguing to me, too, is just to see those fine cracks beginning to form. And you've, you've evolved the, that passion for, for those stories into your blog, which is about forgotten stories of Chicago residents, haven't you? And I had a look at that, and it's very sweet, but really detailed and quite time-consuming to do. Are those stories ones of the people that you met in the nursing home. Yeah, exactly. So when I was hired, um, I was hired as the admissions director for this nursing home. And it turns out I was really terrible at it (laughs) because I didn't realize at the time that my job as admissions director was to basically sell beds, 
be an ambulance chaser. And I just didn't have any uh, taste for that. I really just, I loved being with the residents. I loved talking to them. I loved, you know, solving their roommate disputes or finding a lost sweater. So finally one day the administrator called me into his office and he said, you know, this isn't working. And I thought, oh no, I'm about to be fired. But he said, you know, we're going to put you in social service. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's perfect. (laughs) Now it really is my job to be with these people. And I was supposed to only write a little paragraph about their life and put it in the chart. But I would spend weeks with them, literally talking to them and getting these stories out of them. And I think it was really beneficial for everybody because it, it let me get to know them really well. And I think it helped the, their transition because somebody was sitting with them and really wanted to hear their stories. Yeah. You know, their family had heard these stories a million times, you know how it is, but here was, you know, a fresh person who had never heard mm-hmm. any of them. Mm-hmm. And and then it, I think it also helped the staff, too, to kind of ha- see this person as a more whole person. And nobody ever told me not to do it. So I just, you know, kept doing it. And then when I started on this writing career, my um, PR person said, you know, you really need a blog. And I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> I can't blog. I, You know, I was in the I was in the Stone Ages at the beginning. And. I didn't really think I had anything to say. I mean, I, I was a new writer. I really didn't feel like I could discuss the craft of writing with anybody. So um, I finally came upon this idea, why don't I just tell one of these stories every week? And that matched perfectly with the book. So, you know, one, you know, they kind of went hand in hand. And what's neat is that the the blog actually has its own little following separate from the books, which I find a little weird, but that's kind of cool too. That's lovely. And what sort of feedback do you get on the blog? About the blog? Um, yeah. People love the love, 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 love those stories. And it's great because I have over the years been able to find different like Facebook forums where they allow me to share those stories. And so that's, you know, opens it up to a whole new readership. Um, I, my best story about, you know, a, a blog fan is that one time I was in downstate Illinois. So a few hours, you know, away from where I live and I was going to this this auction, my brother was wanted me to go to this auction. So I said, fine. So I was filling out my information to get like a ticket. And the person behind the desk said, are you Michelle Cox, the writer? And I said, well, yes. <laughs> and she said, oh, I read your blog every week and I love it. And I was stunned. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. You know, you always wonder, is anybody out there reading this? Well, there you go. That's <laughs> yeah. proof that at least there was one person. So it's oh, great. Lovely. And I, I think that people like little, you know, they say the world is moving this way, smaller and smaller bites of, of information. And yes. people don't want to sit down and read a big, long thing. So, but they will sit down and read one of these stories. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Actually, funnily enough, I was just seeing on my email feed, there's a piece come through saying that even in terms of writing, that people are writing shorter and shorter things and, you know, putting them as eBooks on Kindle, but people are looking for shorter and shorter things to read as well. So, Yes, exactly. James Patterson is putting out these, what, these little tiny 
like mini books, isn't he? I think he is, yeah. And you could easily do some novellas. I mean, I think it would be real fun to do some novellas about some of those stories that you're talking about. So, Michelle, you've talked a little bit about your life before becoming a published writer. Um, just expand on that a little bit. So, you, you, But you grew up in Chicago, didn't you? No, I actually oh. grew up in a very small town. Oh. Uh, yeah, on the Illinois-Iowa border. So it was the I, it was a small farm. It was my great-grandparents' farm. And I won a scholarship to a, an all-women's college run by nuns in Chicago. And because I didn't have any money, I just, I applied for scholarships all over. And I just said I would go to the school that gave me the most money, wherever it was. And that was it. <laughs> So off I went and um, it was great. I mean, I, it was, that's why I think I can write, you know, Henrietta and also her sister Elsie, who has more and more and more of a role in the books as they go along. Um, I can write them well, like to be sort of a naive person in the, the big city and all of the sort of dangers that that, goes along with that. So it did inform uh, my writing in a way. And of yes. course, it was the the vehicle to meeting all the people in the in the nursing home. Yes, that's right. Um, is there one thing that you've done as you've gone along more than any other that you would say is the secret of your success? I mean, having already written five books, that's really quite a substantial uh, work that you've you've already achieved there. Thank you. Um, yeah, I would have to say it's it's got to be discipline. I mean, you really have to have it. Um, you have to have a regular time that's devoted to putting words on the page every single day. Um, I, I, there really isn't such a thing as writer's block. It, it's like exercise. Yeah. Nobody gets out of bed and says, oh, I feel like exercising. You know, it's the same with writing. You don't necessarily jump out of bed and feel like doing it, but you have to, or you're, you're not going to get anything done. Yeah. Yeah. And what kind of work habits do you have in the sense, do you set yourself unrealistic goals and then get stressed out or are you, are you perfectly <laughs> regulated? <laughs> I wish, right? Oh, gosh. Um, no, I'm an overachiever, workaholic, get stressed out. Um, you know, it was a lot easier when I was just writing the books. And now that I'm, you know, I'm writing, book four comes out in a couple of weeks. I'm in production and editing with book five. I, I'm trying to shop this standalone novel and all at the same time, you know, market all the other books. So um, I try actually, because I'm kind of type, type A, to have these like little schedules of, okay, I'm going to do this for a certain amount of time and then I'm going to move to this and this. And I, I, I sort of stick to it, but, um, you know, it just, it usually goes out the window and then I have to start all over the next week. But slowly <laughs> I inch along. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> in a recent Facebook post, you confess that your favorite website in the whole world is Willow <laughs> and Thatch, which I had never heard of until you'd mentioned it. I immediately went and had a look at it, and it is fabulous. It's a site that <laughs> focuses on historical dramas on TV and movies, and actually it's a very nicely done site. Um, 
And it's, then I saw that wonderful piece you'd written about upstairs and downstairs, and it became clear that you have devoted a lot of time and, and um, intellectual energy to following these period dramas. Thank you. Yeah, um, I love that site. I just stumbled upon it one day and I thought, oh my God, I'm in heaven. <laughs> A whole site devoted to period drama. It was like made for me. So for a while I was like this, you know, secret stalker fan. And then I actually reached out to them and said, hey, could I promote my books? I think that they would be a great fit on your site and also, you know, write for you. And they said, yeah, sure. So I've, I've written two pieces for them now. And let me tell you, they are very rigorous editors. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad because the articles turned out, I think, so nicely. But they really are very, very professional in their editing and how they put the stories together. I mean, it's, it's just gorgeous. That that article that I read, the upstairs downstairs, there was so much hard fact there. So many actors were named in their past work. It was it was really encyclopedic. I quite believe that you had a rigorous editor there tapping you on the shoulder, saying, "Now, what about this?" Asking lots of questions. <laughs> oh yes, for sure. I mean, I had presented a lot of that. I had done a lot of research, but. Um, they not only checked my research, but added to it. I'm like, wow, mm -hmm. who has time for this? <laughs> but no, it was good. That's wonderful. Look, we do call this podcast The Joys of Binge Reading, and it sounds like you might have been a very conscientious reader who never allowed yourself to binge <laughs> read because the, the, the connotation for binge reading is that it is pure escapist pleasure. Have you ever read for pure escapist pleasure? Well, hmm, um, <laughs> I did. Well, I don't know if you would call this escapist pleasure. It was for me. I did read all of Anthony Trollope's. Um, oh. oh, yeah. The Barchester Chronicles and then the Pallisers. And it, it's funny to me that no one, I, I feel like he's the most underrepresented writer uh, in the English language. He's never taught in college. And it, it's clear the Pallisers are a, a forerunner for Downton or upstairs, downstairs. And I, it's weird to me that it's never mentioned. So yeah. I have read through all of those, but if you really want to talk about binge, um, I love Lauren Willig's pink carnation series. And oh. I also love Reese Bowen's her Royal Spinus series. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Reese was one of the first people that we had on the podcast and she oh was fabulous. Gosh. I thought she was wonderful. It was so kind of her to, to come on when really it was just a very new podcast. I felt she was doing me a great favor, but she's a lovely person as well. But yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, she is. I met her at a BoucherCon as a mystery convention conference, and she's so sweet, so approachable. I, I'm very impressed with her. Mm -hmm. That's great. We are starting to come to the end of our time together. So circling back and looking back over your life and your working career, at this stage, if you were doing it all over again, would you change anything? What a good question. Um, you know, I guess I would I would go into this whole thing understanding that it's a business and make better decisions based on that. 
Mm-hmm. So as it happened, you know, I just wrote a book and that was a personal challenge. And then it was a challenge to get it published. And then it was a challenge to write another book and so on. And then suddenly I woke up and I realized I'm in the middle of running a business and I didn't really prepare for that. Mm-hmm. So that's probably been the biggest learning curve and one which I'm actually still trying to master because, yeah. you know, being a good writer doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good business person, but mm-hmm. in order to be successful today, that's really what you have to do. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, that's the world we live in, unfortunately, or fortunately, yeah. maybe yeah. for some people. So how long has that been? When was the first one published? The first one was came out in April of 2016. Um, and I had submitted it, it. I had signed the contract December of 2014. And the publisher said that she could probably rush it and get it, get it out in the fall of 2015. And she said, but I advise you, since you're starting from zero with no platform, nothing, you know, to take a year and try to ramp up. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very glad that I took that advice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I've been at it really since 2015. That's not a long time because there is a huge amount to learn. If you're still trying to write as well, because, you know, that's what we're supposed to do, keep on writing books and do all the rest as well. It's yes. certainly not easy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a lot of balls to juggle. Now, so what is next for Michelle, the writer? You've mentioned this one that you, the standalone that you've completed. What are you actually working on at the moment? And have you got some big goals for yourself over the next few years? Well, that's a good question too. Um, you know, I'm I'm trying to, to get book five out into the world. Um, I've been mentally sketching out some ideas for possibly six um, and I'm really trying to, like I said, find a, a new agent, a new publisher for um, this standalone book. And I don't know where I'm going after that. Uh, I have I have a great some great ideas for spinoffs off of this series, which I always thought would be so fun. I love that when writers have different series, but some of the, the characters cross over. Yeah, I would love yeah. to do something like that. That sounds like fun and it sounds like it's an extremely fruitful uh, field to, to look into too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm. it does seem like a popular um, genre. So that's good. And especially if this trend towards shorter fiction keeps coming, then you could look at doing, you know, 10, 10 novellas that are spinoffs. I mean, that's just, just putting it out there, but um, uh-huh. you could definitely see possibilities for something like that, couldn't you? Yeah, and that's a really good idea because um, my books are getting longer and longer with each one that comes out, <laughs> which is not, you know, is not following the trend. So, you know, that that series could stay that way, but yeah, spinning off smaller things might be a better way to go. And sometimes. You, you develop a backstory for a character. You've, you've got this huge backstory, but you don't really need to shove it all in the book. In fact, it's better in a way if you don't. But once you've got it all there, you can use it in another way in a shorter spin-off. <laughs> yeah, right. Or even create a little spin-off series, but just smaller, yeah. smaller amounts. 
Yeah, that sounds great. Oh, well, you've got yourself busy for the next five years. (laughs) I'll get right on it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Michelle, look, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm sorry that we had a few little glitches with the technology, but we we have survived those very well. Thank you so much for being on the show and um, all the very best with your writing. Thank you, Jenny. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.